0: The reading of the word this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the, the word of our word God, God will stand, stand forever. forever. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider this story and spend the next few weeks on it, Lord, we pray that you would capture our minds and our imaginations and that you would take them captive for yourself, Lord, that we might lift up our hearts to see you and to behold you through this story. We pray, Lord, that you would be with the words of Pastor Sheridan now as he offers them for you to us, Lord, and that you would prepare our hearts to receive them and to be transformed by them. We pray that you would send your spirit now according to our need. We pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Nathaniel. I was thinking earlier this morning of those haunting moments that many of you, maybe most of you in this room know when you... Look in your rearview mirror, and there they are, those flashing blue lights. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? The heart kind of falls into your stomach. I remember the very first time that it happened to me. As a freshman in college, I was on my way, actually, to the campus, and instead of pressing the brake, just kind of touched the clutch and kicked it out of gear and slowed to a roll through the stop sign and got caught and promptly pulled me over in the Baptist Student Union parking lot. (laughs) Students coming and going from Bible studies, prayer, time with the Lord, commandment keeping, all kinds of wonderful things, I'm sure. And there I was, having a ticket, being written. Now, you know who you are. The person who sees those blue lights appear at some distance, maybe in your rearview mirror, and for a split second, you question, should I gas it? Can I outrun them? Or should I pull over? The second thought happens, and for most of us, the second thought is, no fool, pull over. And you rightfully do that. For For some, like one of my friends, he didn't have that second thought. He got caught going way too fast in a school zone and decided that in his very fast Ford Mustang that he could find a way to navigate in and around those blue lights, darting in and out of side streets and subdivisions until more blue lights started showing up. And he finally decided he would pull into someone's garage that he didn't know and close the garage door as if to escape when slowly but surely they surrounded the house. And he learned the very hard lesson of what is, I believe, the lesson of this text, is that you can run, but you cannot hide. Now we actually want to look at this particular text, Jonah chapter 1, with that story in mind, with that principle in mind, that if you determine, as many of us have done, maybe even some of us right now in this room, despite the appearances of drawing close to the Lord, despite being in a place that would appear as if you are here to worship Him, that your heart and your life, should it be known, would show us a trajectory of running away from Him. I don't know where you are this morning, but I have to believe in a context this large that that is true of some of us in this room. God wants you to know That if you're one of His, you can run, but you can't hide. And He says that to you, not as a threat, but as a sober warning. And even deeper, as a severe mercy. We want to look at this passage, Jonah chapter 1, under three headings. We want to see first that in willful disobedience... We are those who run from God. We want to see, secondly, that in severe mercy, God sends to us storms. And we want to see, thirdly, that in personal sacrifice, God catches us and He brings us home. Willful disobedience, severe mercy, personal sacrifice. This is the pattern of the unfolding of the narrative here in Jonah chapter 1. I want you to begin with me as we consider this first theme, in willful disobedience we run from God. I want you to see the call of Jonah. It's right there at the very beginning of our text. Look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. (laughs) This is the call that God gives to Jonah. The text actually indicates he is to do exactly what the Lord has called him to do and to do so quickly. Arise, do this immediately. I want to send you to the great Assyrian city known as Nineveh. And I want you to preach a message of looming coming judgment and the need for the people to repent. It's a very difficult task that Jonah has been called to. To do, But it is Jonah who is the perfect man for the job. We know Jonah, the wandering wayward prophet, here in this particular narrative. But do we know Jonah, the faithful man of God, who was something of a hometown hero in Israel? Maybe we don't know that Jonah. Jonah was a widely respected prophet in Israel who had a vital ministry of service. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 14. He actually served under the reign of Jeroboam II. It was him who received from the Lord the good news revelation that the borders of Israel were going to be expanded during Jeroboam II's reign. In other words, Israel was going to be successful in several military campaigns. And in the success of those campaigns, a larger landmass was going to be available to the people of Israel. Jonah prophesied of this, and then it came true. The good news revelation of a faithful and vital ministry, a man who is described in that text as the prophet of Israel. Yes, with the article the, meaning to say this is our guy and there is no one who parallels or compares to him. It's important that we understand it's within the context of a vital and faithful and widely respected ministry that this call comes. It's a call that's very different from the one that he received previously. To go to Nineveh. Nineveh, a large urban center in the middle of Assyria. It is modern day close to the city of Mosul, which some of you have as you've been reading of the news with ISIS fighters who've come in and taken over Mosul and even there is the alleged attack uh, that was upon the very um, tomb of Jonah himself. It could have been destroyed for all of that we know. Uh, Nineveh, a place in its own day among the literature known for exploitation, violence, and all kinds of gross wickedness, Nahum, Another one of our minor prophets actually devotes an entire chapter to the city of Nineveh. And it starts with the language of woe, which is not a good way to start a chapter if he's talking about you and your nation. In other words, it's a chapter of judgment, looming judgment that's coming on Nineveh. And this is what he says about it. He says it's a bloody city. It's full of lies and plunder. It's marked by prostitution and deadly charms. Not exactly the family-friendly atmosphere that some of us would look for. Now what this means for Jonah is that he is a man who has for quite some time enjoyed a very nice and peaceful ministry with a good news revelation among people who love him. And now God is saying it's time to hang up the cleats on that call. It's time to retire the jersey, put it up on the gymnasium wall because I've got a new mission for you. It's another mission that's going to call you to a very hard and difficult task to go into the very center of a city that parallels Sodom and Gomorrah, a city of great wickedness that hates you. And you're going to go there not with a good news revelation, you're going to go there with a word of judgment and a call to repentance. And it's no surprise that Jonah, in the midst of that, says, No thanks. I kind of like what I'm doing now, I've got a nice gig. This, these people like me. I'm kind of the hero of, of Gath Hefer, my hometown here in Israel. You mean you're going to send me? You think there's another Jonah that maybe you're wanting to look? You think you have the right Jonah here to do this work? Jonah says, forget it. We're told that the only thing he does in obedience to the call of God that came is He arose. He arose, and then what did he arise to do? Well, he arose to go in the exact opposite direction of the way in which the Lord has called him. If you look at the back of your bulletin, the very final page, just on the inside cover, you'll see a map of Jonah's journey, and you can see very clearly that Nineveh, the place in which he is called to go, to the east, and about 600 to 700 or so miles from where Israel is. He is now chosen to go to Tarshish, which is forever far away across the Mediterranean Sea in what we presume to be southern Spain. And why I say presume? Because there's not a lot of historical record about the place of Tarshish. That's why you see a little question mark there by where Tarshish is located. He decides not merely to stay put and say no. He decides to flee in the opposite direction of God's call. And as is described there in verse 3 in our text, notice there is a bit of a spiritual commentary. We're told that he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If you didn't catch it, it says it again later in the verse. He bought the fare to go to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. If you look down at verse 10... In Jonah chapter 1, you'll see that he says it again as he's talking to the sailors that he was indeed fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now this is really important for, I think, us to hear, and I believe there's a point sitting here on the surface of the text of Jonah 1. And it's something that I don't think we ponder very often. It's this, that when we say no to the calling and the commands of God, we are in principle fleeing from the presence of God. When we put it in those terms, it has a little bit of an arrest to our heart, doesn't it? Oh, I'm breaking one of the commands. No, I'm fleeing from God. Puts it in an entirely different perspective. That Jonah here very clearly knows that when he says no to the call of God upon his life, he is actually needing to escape from the very presence of God. And that's what he's doing here in this text. Uh, And I think that you have probably found out in your life as I have found out in my life that when I decide that I'm going to do it my way, that I have a better idea than what the Lord has clearly revealed in His Word and what He's clearly called me to do. That when I decide to blaze my own trail, it immediately creates distance from the Lord. And in the distance of the Lord, we begin to see our lives drift into disaster. It's exactly what we see here taking place with Jonah. It's what we've seen characteristically throughout the Old Testaments if we're students of the Word. Don't we see this originally in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve? I mean, this same phrase is used. After they decide to blaze their own trail and not hold fast to the command and the call of God and they eat the forbidden fruit, we're told that God later walks in the garden that day and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And what are they doing? We're told that they hid from what? the presence of the Lord. It's the recognition that when we say no to the calling and the commands of God, we don't often realize that we're also forfeiting a closeness to the presence of the Lord. His purposes and His presence are tied. And He yokes Himself to that which He calls us unto. Now let me ask you though, Are we ever very successful at escaping the presence of the Lord? In one sense, we talk about being distant from the Lord, and what we typically mean is a spiritual intimacy with the Lord, a kind of malaise that's come over our hearts and our lives, a kind of a sense that He's not present with us. And yet, at any level in our lives, are we ever really distant from the Lord? Well, at another theological level, no. God is everywhere. He is the all-seeing eye. He is the ever-present God. In fact, the psalmist, Psalm 139, King David, someone who knew a little bit about wandering from the Lord, wrote these words, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the place of the dead, you are there. If I take wings of the morning, or notice, dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, it's almost as if it was written for Jonah. Even there, what? Your hand shall leave me. There is an irony that Jonah, the prophet of God, called by the voice of God, who had vital ministry from God, is now fleeing from the presence of God and he will never be able to outrun him. And neither will you. And neither will me. I don't know if you are running from the Lord today. I don't know if you are openly and willfully disobedient to the commands and the call of God. But I will tell you this, sooner or later, beware. Numbers 32 tells us, your sins will find you out. Do you see there is no such thing ultimately as secret sin There is no such thing in the presence of almighty God And if you are one of his there should be both the somber sober realization at the fact that he knows more than even you know about the extent of your sin and your waywardness and yet, as we see with Jonah, he doesn't merely forsake you. He has a plan, even in that. You know the experience. Maybe some of you are reaping the consequences of it now, even as Jonah does in this passage. When you're running from the Lord and you are dead set on doing it your way, does not your life ultimately get more painful? Don't you become more paranoid? Don't you get all in your head? all these fears and worries and anxieties begin to overtake you as you become flooded with the cares of the world, as you strive to outrun what you know you're going to have to say yes to, that that experience internally is actually pointing to the reality of the truth of the matter. When your conscience brings that to your mind and it begins to sober you, that you will not be able to escape the consequences of your sin ultimately, believe that impulse. For it is true for Jonah and it is true for you and me. Your life begins to spin out of control. The wheels begin to come off. It's what you see here happening with the trajectory of Jonah. It's very interesting in the literary quality of Jonah, which is rich. This is really a Hebraic masterpiece in storytelling. I want you to see how in verse 3, how it paints Jonah's life spiraling down the tubes. It says, he goes down... To Joppa in verse 3. And then notice later in verse 3, then Jonah went down into the ship. And later we're told that Jonah goes down into the cabin of the ship. And what does he do down in the cabin of the ship? Well, he falls asleep. These are not mere directional markers, you understand. These are spiritual comments upon a man's life who's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He is a man that is going down. Let me tell you, friends, he will have to go much further down still before he comes to a senses. In willful disobedience, we run from the Lord, and the Lord is calling you and me in His presence right now in the company and the assembly of His people to do the spiritual inventory necessary to ask your heart the question, are you walking and keeping with the commands and the call of God or are you running in the opposite direction? Believe the instincts of your heart when you answer honestly before Almighty God. And Let me tell you, He has kind intentions in revealing what's there. He's here not to simply condemn, He's here to retrieve. Want you just see secondly in this text a severe mercy, God sends a storm. There's a place in Hosea 8 where God says to the rebellious people of Israel, you have sown the wind, now you will reap a whirlwind. It could be a commentary on the entirety of what it is that Jonah is experiencing here in Jonah chapter 1. For Jonah begins to experience the whirlwind of the Lord as we are told in verse 4 that God mounts the pitcher's mound, as it were, and with a strike hurls a storm in the direction of Jonah. But before he does that, Jonah makes a few decisions of his own. Uh, some decisions that may actually point To how it is that we often make decisions in our life. Before the storm comes. We're distant from the Lord. We've already set ourselves against His call and His command. But we're still making decisions about the direction of our lives. Bad decisions. And do you know what tends to happen when you leave the revealed revelation of God. And decide to interpret the providences of your life on your own. You tend to make really bad decisions. Interestingly, in this particular passage, when Jonah goes down to Joppa, we find that he looks to go to Tarshish. And guess what? There's a boat there. And guess what? He has the provisions to take that boat. And guess what? It's a really nice crew of men. I mean, we see that they're very kind. They're actually more concerned about spiritual health and Jonah's existence than Jonah is. As we go through this text, it's really quite remarkable Maybe he went to the harbor and the boat to Nineveh was going to take a couple of days. Surely God doesn't want me to wait. I mean, here's a boat that goes straight to Tarshish. And listen, there are unbelievers in Tarshish. I can, I can preach the same message in Tarshish that I could preach in Nineveh. What's the difference between Assyria or southern Spain? They're all, they're, they're all in need of help. You know how easy it is to begin to see through the rationalization of our own minds we begin in an inclination towards what we really want and all of a sudden we see an open door we like to talk about open doors don't we we like to talk about things that come together smoothly so it must be god's will i don't know about you but i don't know in reading the scripture that i would say things coming together smoothly is an indication of god's will I don't know about the open door necessarily says, come right here. In fact, I think we need to do a little thinking about this. That sometimes an open door is is not an opportunity, but is more of a temptation. And sometimes when we are already inclined in one direction, we wind up baptizing what we call an open door as a sign from the Lord. When, in fact, we know that the harder but better path would be to take this one, but it all looks really close to us. I love what Colin Smith says on this point in commentating on Jonah. He says, temptation involves inclination combined with opportunity. Sometimes inclination is present, but the opportunity is not. Sometimes the opportunity is present, but the inclination is not. But when the inclination and the opportunity arrive together, temptation reaches the height of its power. In Jonah's case, he's already inclined towards Tarshish and he looks for the opportunity and he finds it in a boat that's headed to Tarshish. Now listen to him here. There will always be a ship in the harbor to take you in the opposite direction of God's call. Don't confuse opportunity with the will of the Lord. Circumstances, yes, can be helpful in discerning what is right when you're walking with God. But those same circumstances can mislead a heart that is in rebellion. The Lord is your shepherd. He is the one who leads and guides. And if you're refusing what he has clearly said in the scripture then set no other guidance before yourself as reliable. Jonah has already inclined himself in the direction of disobedience and it's not surprising that in so doing he finds the opportunities that are there. We tend to see the things that we're looking for. And yet little does Jonah know that God's in the midst of that. We tend to want to get God off the hook for our bad decisions, but in reality he's sovereign over those too. He's not tainted with the sin of them in the culpability that we are, but he is indeed orchestrating and overseeing and guiding and directing sovereignly. And sometimes he is, as he is here with Jonah, like a father who gives his children enough space to make the big mistakes in order to learn the lessons that they would not otherwise learn. Isn't it true in your life, it's true in mine, that I often learn best when I learn it hardest? Oh, I wish it weren't true, but it is true. I have to be pulled over in the BSU parking lot to learn to press my brake. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And ironically, there is a way that looks like death that is God's way. But its end is the way of life. But in this lesson that Jonah's learning that we've had to learn and are learning, are we not? We learn some really deeply comforting truth. And that's this. That the whirlwind is not simply there to teach a lesson. To say, I got you. I told you so. No, God... And his merciful and loving inclinations are inside the whirlwind. It is his love that animates the storm. Isn't that what happens here for Jonah? The storm is raging and threatens to destroy the boat, to kill everyone on board, and each of the mariners is calling on his own God for help. When, of course, the captain realizes that Jonah is nowhere to be found. He's sleeping like a baby, seared conscience and all, down in the middle of the boat. And in a place of tremendous irony, which Jonah, the book, is filled with unbelievable satire, humor, and irony, we see here one of the clearest moments of it. Sailors. Sailors. You know the reputation of sailors. Sailors. Sailors, idol worshipers from who knows where are calling passionately upon a God who is not there. And Jonah, the only one on the boat that knows the true God, who is a prophet, for goodness sakes, is fast asleep in its cabin. And if that weren't enough, the irony goes a little deeper. It's the sailor who gives a prophetic word To Jonah, in fact, using some of the language of verse 2 and the call of God, he says, Arise, O sleeper, and call. Those must have been words that echoed in Jonah's ears, for he had just heard them from the Lord. Arise and go to Nineveh. But here, notice what the sailor calls him to do. Arise and go to God. And is that that exactly what Jonah needed to do? It's exactly what Jonah needed to do. And yet from the text, there is this deafening silence. Jonah doesn't seem to respond at all. We have no record of what is there, but we do know this. He didn't give them an ounce of information about who he really was and why the storm was there, which he had already put two and two together. Why do we know this? Because in the very next section of the narrative, they're casting lots to figure out who's culpable for this. There's Jonah, in the midst of seeing all of this take place, quiet as a mouse, while everyone else feverishly realizes that this is a threat from the Lord. This is no ordinary storm, and here's what's remarkable, that God in the midst of the whirlwind is also this, God in the midst of the casting of lots. For in the midst of the casting of lots, the lot falls upon Jonah, and I hope that you can hear him back in and bumping his head in the corner of the room. It's my friend surrounded after shutting the garage door. He has sealed his fate. Jonah, in a very real sense, has done the exact same thing. He is to call out to the Lord. And now they have cast lots. Now they know the real story about who is culpable for the storm and listen to Jonah. He just comes out with brilliantly noble and righteous truth. No, he does what you and I do. He tells a little bit of truth and a little bit of falsehood. He says, I am a Hebrew. He's good so far. The God who has sent this storm is the one who's made the sea and the earth. He is correct so far. And notice what he says in between those two statements. And I fear the Lord. Really, Jonah? I mean, really? That's what we get. What about this story so far has led you to believe that Jonah is in great fear of the Lord? Nothing whatsoever. This is a man who has no fear of the Lord in these moments. He has placed himself and these sailors at the mercy of his rejection of the Lord. Here's no fear of the Lord here, and yet we see an exceeding fear on the sight of the sailors. And so they ask the question, what must we do? And Jonah gives them a very straight answer. He says, you're going to have to hurl me into the sea. hope that you catch it's the same word that's mentioned in verse 4. When God hurled a storm at Jonah, now we're told that Jonah has to be hurled towards the storm. And of course, these very kind sailors think, oh no, Jonah, there's got to be another way. We're going to row harder. In fact, the word there for row harder means to dig deep, if you've ever been rowing in a canoe or a kayak or anything of that you know when you dig deep you're trying to push really strong that's exactly the picture that's given here and yet as they row harder what happens the tempestuous storm it's raging against them pushes harder back and they realize that there's no way to go but to begin to trust the words of this prophet Jonah, which really leads to our third point here In personal sacrifice, God delivers us and brings us home. It's remarkable as Jonah is thrown overboard that the storm immediately ceases. The wind quits blowing. The water becomes glass. The sailors are spared. And you would think that the fear of the sailors would disappear. But that's not what we see at all in the text, is it? In fact, it's just the object of fear changes. They were afraid of the storm and the impending death of the destruction of the boat that was upon them. But now, they're afraid of the God of the storm. For the moment that they threw Jonah overboard and they saw the stillness show up on the Mediterranean Sea, they knew they were not trifling with some minuscule idol. But indeed, Jonah was correct they had engaged and encountered the God who had made the sea. And he had hushed it in the moment of their sacrifice of Jonah. Indeed, isn't that what they thought that they were doing? They believed that this was the end for Jonah. They believed that someone would have to take their place in order for them to survive someone would have to die if they weren't all going to go down in the storm you know, isn't this a great picture of the very gospel that you and I trust and believe in as one commentator put it Christ is the one who went into the eye of the storm He's the one who's gone down into the depths for us. He is the one who's offered up himself as a sacrifice. He's the one who's absorbed the judgment of God. But far exceeding Jonah, who was responsible for the sins that he had committed and deserved the judgment of the Lord, Jesus, faultless, willingly throws himself, as it were, over the side of the boat hurls himself into the wrath of God, satisfying God's wrath completely on our behalf so that we, as the sailors in this narrative, can pause in fear and astonishment at the Lord, offering sacrifices and making vows to be committed to continue to walk after the Lord. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. It's a glorious picture of what we know that we need. Someone to quell the storms that have been caused by our faithlessness, by our disobedience. That the wreck of our life would continue to rumble until utterly destroyed unless someone takes the complete attack of God's wrath and judgment appropriately so on our behalf. And that's what Jesus has willingly done when he went to the cross. And it's what we see prefigured here in Jonah. Someone who would be much greater than Jonah, the greater Jonah, Jesus himself. Don't you love the way the Lord works? Even in the moments where you don't love it. Even in the moments where it's painful. And you're under the disciplinary measures of a God who loves you. He loves you too much to let you go. And he promises that he will use you, he will accomplish his mission in whatever way he wants to accomplish it. I find it just utterly stunning that that Jonah resisted going to Nineveh because he didn't want to go with evil idol worshipers who don't love God with the threat of death. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. And where does he end up? In a boat with idol worshipers with the threat of death. There is a way that seems right to a man. And in the end is the way of, of death. And yet, what he thought would be death, the going to Nineveh, actually is the way of life. And, and when we get further into this narrative, we're going to see this. I think it's astonishing. You, you realize, why did Jonah not want to go? Was it just because he was just really loved his ministry and all the things there. I'm sure that played a part as we've discussed this morning. But there was a deeper problem at the core of Jonah's heart. And it was this. That he had no love for the nations. He had no love for the unconverted out there. He actually, in chapter 4 of Jonah, which we'll discuss in a few weeks, he becomes exceedingly angry when God converts Nineveh. He said, see, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. I don't even like these people. I mean, if you had told me you were going to rain down fire and sulfur like you did at Sodom and Gomorrah, sign me up. I'll be that guy. I'll help you with that. But you want to convert these people. These are Assyrians. This is Nineveh, for goodness sake. And you're wanting to draw them into your kingdom. I knew you were going to do something crazy like that. That was Jonah's trouble. And here's what's amazing of what God does God in the boat there with the sailors as Jonah is thrown overboard, what does Jonah actually wind up doing? Being the means that God uses to bring idol worshipers who hate God into saving relationship with him. The same people he doesn't want to see converted he ends up in the boat with and through his submersion into the deep they become those who sacrifice him to God and commit vows to Yahweh. Now here's what I want you to hear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He will do it with you. He will do it against you. But whether he does it with you or against you matters a whole lot for you. That's the warning of Jonah. That's the warning at this moment in the narrative. As I pray, you sit on the edge of your pew a bit going... And as Jonah's lungs begin to fill with water, will there be? Another end to what looks like a tragedy for the venerable prophet known as Jonah. More to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. There's a whole lot of Jonah in every one of us in this room. He who is without sin casts the first stone. We know no better than this man. Indeed, we know that he has been given to us as an example in teaching of the glorious truths of the gospel because we can so deeply relate. To those who are running from you in this room, to those in whom you may be hurling storms in their direction in severe mercy, to those who are facing the undoing consequences of a lifetime of sinfulness, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. And today as it appears that our lungs fill with water unto death, would you appoint a fish, a rescuer, someone to maintain us, to retrieve us, and bring us back home to you. Lord, you know the hearts. You know our stories. You know exactly what we need. and do your work in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.